Thank you. Um, I'd, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Mark Howden, who's going to be our first presenter this morning. Um, Mark Howden is the director of the ANU uh, Climate Change Institute. Um, he works uh, primarily on climate uh, impacts and innovative options for systems we value, agriculture, food, security, natural resource bases, base, ecosystems, biodiversity, energy, water, water and urban systems, their, their coverage. Um, he's developed a national and inter he, he's helped develop national and inter intergenerational greenhouse gas inventories, which are the basis of the Paris Agreement. Uh, and uh, he has worked on climate variability, climate change, innovation and adoption issues for over 30 years in partnership with industry, community and policy groups. Um, and he's been a major contributor to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change since 1991. With that, I might uh, ask Mark to step up and present. Thanks very much, Peter, and uh, thanks, Anne, for the invitation here. Um, is that microphone working for the people at the back? Okay, I'll, I'll speak up a little bit more. Okay, righto. Um, so, so just uh, this morning, what I'm just going to do is a, is a sort of quick introductory presentation. So, so I'll cover a little bit on what's happening with our climate and why, um, what might happen in the future, and a little bit on uh, sort of higher level issues to do with impacts and adaptation. Uh, and I'll do that because I know that Nola and Peter and others are going to cover some of the detail in terms of adaptation options a little bit later. And so um, in giving this talk, I give it, of course, on the behalf of many other people who have done uh, much of this work. So I'm drawing together um, work from different people here. So, so just a really quick sort of move through some of the elements here. So, so one of them is that the cause of climate change, that's the greenhouse gas emissions um, that humans are producing, uh, keep on going up. Um, they're going up a little bit slower, as this graph would show, um, than they have been in the past, um, but they're still going up. And so what this shows is just the carbon dioxide component, carbon dioxide being the main greenhouse gas. Um, and you can see this going back to 1990. Uh, it's been going steadily up. There was a little blip there with the global financial crisis in um, 2008. Um, and then within a couple of years, it was back essentially on the previous trajectory. You can see that over the last few years, it's starting to flatten out a little bit. Um, that's actually a really good news story. And that flattening out is largely um, because of things like fracking, so the energy intensity or energy density of uh, electricity production particularly has gone down, um, but also through the incursion of much greater renewable capacity across the globe. So that little flattening out is a really good sign, um, but flattening out of the carbon dioxide concentrations does not reduce the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. So, so what happens is that it just slows down the growth, but to actually bring climate change down, we would actually have to bring that graph way down below the 22 mark, which is on the bottom of that graph, and down towards zero. So whilst we're anywhere in this sort of range, we're just adding more and more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and that can't be taken up to the full extent by the ocean and by the biosphere, um, and so more and more is left in the atmosphere. And to give you a feel for um, uh, the sort of scope of that change is when I was born, the carbon dioxide concentration was about 310 parts per million. It's now about 407 parts per million. So within one lifetime, we've added almost 100 parts per million of carbon dioxide, almost um, a third 
of the total carbon dioxide concentration pre-industrial has been added in my lifetime. And of course, we've known for a long, long time, over 100 years, that if you add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, you're going to warm the Earth. So this is not new information. We've actually known that since 1842. Um, and this graph just shows the sort of long-term, month-by-month changes in temperature, global temperature, um, that's uh, been happening. And you can see this is put together by Ed Hawkins from the UK. And you can see, uh, particularly in the last few years, we're pre getting pretty close to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So this is 1.5 degrees Celsius, that ring around here. And last year, um, several months, we're almost at 1.5, which is the aspirational Paris target. And if you look at the last few years, 2016 was a record year that beat the previous record, which was in 2015, which beat the previous record, which was in 2013, and it keeps going back. And so we're in record-breaking territory. So even though we've started to tail off those carbon dioxide concentrations, the temperature keeps going up and the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere keeps going up as well. And more locally, if we look, say, at southern Australia, the same sort of story. The temperature just keeps on going up. This is data from the Bureau of Meteorology uh, for southern Australia. And you can see that dark line is the 10-year moving average, so sort of an average line. And you can see that just keeps on going up and up. You know, there is no uh, pause in global warming and the rate of that. It just keeps going up and up. So we've had changes in other um, climate variables. Uh, so. For example, in Southeast Australia, again, Bureau of Meteorology data. So that uh, change, this is the anomaly, the sort of difference from average. Um, and so average rainfall in this region is about 460 parts per millimetres. And we've sort of lost about 50 millimetres of that rainfall. So this is the southern wet season. So I think it's from May to October. And, uh, and so that's roughly about one-eighth of the rainfall in our wet season has actually already disappeared. And this is, uh, has a fingerprint of climate change on it. Uh, if you go over to Western Australia, it's actually much worse than this. So they've lost about 20% of their rainfall over in the southwest as a function of climate change. This is happening already. Um, and so unsurprisingly, if you've got hotter temperatures and less rainfall, um, it's already <coughs> impacting on our system. So this is work from ABARES, just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and uh, what this shows is changes in crop productivity as a function of climate change. Uh, going back several decades, uh, and in some places, so to the west of here, there's been about a 20% reduction in crop productivity as a function of the climate changes we've already seen. And that happens right around um, our cereal grain belts where a lot of land care activity happens. And when they actually start to look at uh, um, what's causing this, one of the really critical things uh, is higher temperatures. Uh, so temperatures have multiple impacts on uh, crop growth, on pasture growth, on trees when you're revegetating, um, and and they, that sort of impacts varies depending on the sort of activity you're involved in. But this one, this, this graph is looking at crop <coughs> yields as a function of temperature, and this is actually in central New South Wales, so the location was around parks. And what that shows is if you look at the average temperature across the growing season, uh, and compare that with yields experienced in that region, you can see there's a really strong negative relationship. So it's a cool growing season, about 17 degrees average across the growing season. Um, you're getting about six tonnes per hectare. You go up to four degrees or so and you're halving the crop yield. So this is actually what's happening. This isn't no modelling or anything like this, it's just what's happening. 
And if you're going up a few extra degrees, you're almost getting down to zero. So in terms of climate change, uh, you know, we're at the moment, even with the Paris Agreement, we're looking at three degrees, maybe four degrees even. Um, you're sort of, you know, just everything else being equal, um, the potential for crop yields in our part of the world is actually going to be severely compromised. And remembering we've already gone up a bit over a degree already. And uh, people like Richard Eckhart from the University of Melbourne were sort of looking at what's happened over the last few decades and they were sort of saying, well, uh, how does that relate to projections of future climate change and things like pasture growth? And so they actually sort of compared scenarios of climate change coming out of the global climate models and putting it through uh, pasture growth models and animal production models. Uh, and essentially what they were finding is that the last 15 or so years are essentially exactly the same or pretty much the same as a 2040 scenario. So their message is uh, that those climate changes that we expect to happen in 2040 are already happening right now. And pretty much across the board, that's the message, is that uh, a lot of the modelling activity underestimates the rate of change and the significance of change, severity of change, um, that we're already experiencing. So, so it's not overestimating and exaggerating, as often seems to be the commentary in the media. It's actually underestimating the rates of change and the risks associated with climate change. And, and it's just, and, I, and I'll mention one of these uh, in relation to the first uh, dams in a minute. And of course, these are just some of many changes that we're seeing as a function of climate change. So other ones, which I just mentioned briefly here, so we've seen rainfall zones moving south, so essentially the tropics moving further south, so summer-dominated rainfall moving south. We've seen increased rainfall intensity, uh, which is uh, an, almost an automatic consequence of having hotter atmosphere. So as you warm up the atmosphere, it can hold a lot more water, an exponential relationship between heat in the atmosphere and the amount of water it can hold. So there's two consequences of that. If you think of the atmosphere as a big bucket, it takes longer to fill the bucket up. So there's bigger gaps between rainfall events. And when the bucket empties, there's a lot more water in the bucket. So your rainfall intensity increases. And that's an automatic consequence of having a warmer atmosphere. Um, things like heat stress, and I'll show a map of this, are, are increasing in some places, not everywhere. Um, storm severity, as you have uh, essentially a increased uh, energy in the atmosphere, you're actually getting more severe thunderstorms, more severe cyclones, so your category four and five cyclones are getting worse. Um, extreme fires, we've got Malcolm Gill in the audience who's an expert in this, but, uh, but if you actually look at the fire danger index, so it's a zero to a hundred scale. Um, the Canberra fires were 113 on that scale, the Black Saturday fires were 180 on that scale, and in that same year we had an event across southern Australia which was 215 on that scale. This is a 0 to 100 scale and we're getting 215. And so those changes are happening really, really fast and much, much faster than anyone would have predicted. So if we actually would have gone back 10 or 15 years and said, uh, you know, we're going to have an, uh, an event of 215 across southern Australia, and people would have just laughed and said, just no way is that going to happen. But it's already happening. Um, if we actually look at climate-related insurance events, they've actually uh, quadrupled. Um, the hydrological and climatological hazards. Um, so that insurance sort of uh, side of things is really being exposed. We've seen changes in animal and plant distributions um, in Australia and in, across most of the globe. So there's thousands of examples now 
of changes in uh, things like distributions and phenology, seasonality of uh, plants and, and behaviours of animals. Um, including pest and disease spread, and we've seen natural resource impacts in some places. So there's a whole stack of things which are, are changing, and as a result, um, sort of try to send this message, just like the Australian Securities and Investment Corporation says, you know, past performance is not necessarily a, a good predictor of future performance. In the same way, we need to be thinking our past climate is not necessarily a good predictor of our future climate. And we need to start thinking how do we actually operationalise that in things like land care. And so as a result, if you just the little dot point at the bottom, in, in almost any system, if you don't match your input, your management, your strategy with the prevailing environment, now whether that's a climate environment or a technical one or a policy environment, um, you either do one of two things. You either incur unnecessary risk in terms of your operations uh, or you underperform compared with what you could otherwise do. And for most organisations, whether it's a business or a government, neither of those is a particularly palatable proposition. So we need to find out how, how can we actually start to deal with climate changes that are come, happening already and are going to come down that pathway faster and faster. Now to give you a bit of a feel for the, in a sense, the urgency of this, um, this is a study that came out less than two weeks ago um, by a couple of people down in Melbourne, uh, Henley and King, and what they have there is uh, over a series of years, going 2000 up to 2030 or so, um, this is the uh, existing temperature graph um, going up here, this is global, and then these lines, the blue and the red, are different phases of the Pacific. So there's a thing called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, sort of operates on a roughly 10 year sort of uh, phase, and it's like a super El Nino system in the Pacific. And if it's in the warm phase, that's the red line, uh, we could actually reach 1.5 degrees global temperature as quickly as 2026. So just nine years away. So there's no, you know, this is, this is right in front of us. If we have this aspirational Paris target, um, effectively there is no way at this point that we can actually um, meet that target. Um, I would actually say that there's almost no way we can actually meet two degrees um, at their current rates of emissions. And these changes are not 2030, they're not 2050, they're like in the next decade. And so that's how quickly things are changing um, and, and in a sense how quickly we need to start responding. Now just a few slides on sort of future change here. And um, so obviously water is a critical one uh, right across Australia. And these, are, these graphs, I've got three of them, which just show the change in runoff um, per degree Celsius. So given that we've already had a one degree Celsius impact, you just need to interpret that. But if we're going to say a, a Paris like three degrees, um, then you take these numbers and multiply them by three. That's the sort of idea. This is on um, runoff, which you know, in a sense is roughly um, equates to river flows. And so the median estimate, this is the middle of the global climate models, remembering that they tend to be underestimates of change. Um, median estimate. So this part of the world that shows minus 10, so if you've got a three degree scenario, it's gonna, you're going to lose 30% of your rainfall. Um, over in the west, it's minus 25, so a three degree scenario means you lose three quarters of your runoff. Um, and up the north, it's um, less clear. If we actually look at the best case scenario coming from this analysis, uh, up in the north, it's positive, and so getting increased uh, um, <coughs> rainfall, but down in this part of the world, it's pretty much neutral. 
So there's no particular sign one way or the other. But this is the worst case scenario, um, and which tends to be where we're sort of heading a bit more. And you can see down this part of the world, it's a 20% per degree sort of change. So if we have a three degree scenario, we're going to lose potentially 60% of our river flows. Over in the west, it's a 30% per degree. And you might think, well, that's pretty exaggerating, you know, what can happen. Um, but if you actually look at Perth dams, the long-term sort of inflows for those dams are about 330 gigalitres in a year. Um, they're down to about 12, 13, 15, depending on the year already. So like a 96% reduction in inflows already, largely as a function of climate change. So these are, these are not sort of, I mean, they're scary, um, but they're not um, exaggerations. If anything, they tend to be underestimating the risks. If you look at fire around the ACT, this is work that Jeff Kerry from ANU did quite a long time ago now. Um, but looking at sort of the current climate, the historical uh, sort of records of fire interval, um, and then, then did a scenario of a relatively modest change. I think it was like a two degrees change. And uh, that sort of change results in a very, very significant change in fire regimes, which needs to be included in fire planning uh, and understanding the impacts on ecosystems. If you look at things like heat stress uh, frequency, heat stress impacts on uh, people if you're working outside particularly, impacts on animal production, impacts on, on plant performance. Um, this is work I did um, last century. Uh, so um, I've been working on this stuff for a while. Um, so, so if you look at the top left, that's the historical frequency of heat stress days. So up in the north, you know, about 70% of days are heat stress days. That's right at the top end. Um, down in the south, it's relatively benign, so less than 10%. So I just, in this case, ran a 2.7 degrees Celsius scenario. So this is like a Paris Agreement type scenario. This is if everyone does the right thing according to our Paris commitments at the moment. Uh, and right across the top end, pretty much every day becomes a heat stress day. So if you're thinking about developing the top end, you know, I would actually argue that this is a pretty important thing to understand. And um, and if you look down at Canberra, you know, so we've gone from the, the nice blue um, into the sort of conditions that used to be experienced up the Queensland border. So think Gunga Windy um, coming down to Canberra in terms of heat stress. And if you've worked in south southern Queensland, you'll know that it's a fundamentally different environment in which to work outside uh, than Canberra is. So really significant changes in those sorts of variables. I've got a couple of slides here dealing with soil erosion, salinity, weeds, um, and species uh, distributions and selection. Um, but this is a really quick snapshot of what are often quite complex issues. So in terms of things like soil erosion, um, so the risk is likely to increase as a function of climate change. Um, this is both due to reduced ground cover because of that more difficult plant growth environment, um, but also because of that higher rainfall intensity is associated with that big bucket emptying more heavily on our systems. Um, rainfall intensity is a critical driver for soil erosion. In terms of dry land salinity, probably a good news story, which we've already seen, um, that risk in many cases is actually <coughs> declined because of the reduction in uh, winter rainfall, the, the cool season rainfall, um, and that risk may decline further, with one caveat, and that's in really low fertility environments where plants don't grow particularly quickly. Um, higher levels of carbon dioxide significantly reduce the stomatal conductance, so that reduces the amount that they evaporate 
Um, so even though you might actually have less rainfall, you might actually increase your recharge in those really low fertility environments. In high fertility environments where plants can grow quickly, um, there's an offset of that stomatal conductance element there. So it's not so bad as a male otherwise be. Uh, in terms of weeds, um, not surprising, dis distributional changes, so things moving south and, and to some extent towards the coast from their existing distributions. Um, new weed environments for, for weeds to invade because there's sort of new combinations of uh, environments which the existing species may not be able to use as effectively. Um, potentially uh, <coughs> increase in competitiveness, uh, particularly C4 plants, summer growing plants versus your, your temperate species of C3s. Um, and a relatively little known part of the picture is that elevated carbon dioxide particularly seems to impact on the effectiveness of glyphosate herbicides, your Roundups and Zeros, those things. And so um, at the same time you're getting increased weed risk, um, some of our key tools for managing those weeds um, are likely to decrease in their effectiveness. And of course, if you've got increased extremes, um, that tends to increase the uh, ability for um, weedy type species to disperse and also in some cases to establish. So um, that, I think, on balance, the sort of weed issues are going to increase uh, in terms of their uh, concern and, uh, and the effectiveness of our management it needs to be real on top of that. So in terms of species, uh, sorry about the loss of the letters at the top, um, but in terms of um, sort of species selection, a, a really brief sort of rundown, and, and Noel is going to cover this a little bit more uh, in her talk, but, but the plants that grow best um, in the environments of the future may well be different from what's there now. And, and this is not a new idea. Um, I think this has been bounced around probably for two decades or so. But, but it's, I think it's important to um, put that in uh, in the discussions and uh, the revegetation guide that Noel is going to talk about already has these sorts of elements, you know, climate adapted versus uh, climate predicted strategies uh, about how you go about um, revegetation and conservation activities. Um, I mention this because there is that potential for conflict between different sets of values here. So if you have a, um, a, a value set which is, which is about you know, conservation of species, your genetics and provenance, um, or conservation of, of particular plant communities and how those communities are structured uh, with, with particular elements in there, that could well be different from a value set which is actually about having a functional plant um, set of species there as well. And so, so these are quite, in a sense, different value sets which need to be reconciled in some way. And again, that's not a, a new idea, but I think it's important to, to raise. And, and the, the last point on the biodiversity side of things, I mean, this is a huge topic which I'm really collapsing, but just, just um, mentioning that the approach that's taken um, to assessing biodiversity and climate change risks is often really highly dependent on the methods that are being used. So, so this is um, something I presented quite some years ago now, but it was just taking three different sort of methodological approaches of looking at where biodiversity hotspots and climate change, so high risk areas, may be um, across Australia. And if you take a diversity based view, you're going to get the northeast rainforest, the um, Alps and, and the southwest are really critical areas where your issues might arise. If you, you take a, um, a community-based view, you end up with something like this. 
Um, and if you take a dissimilarity index-based view, like Simon Ferrier, you actually end up with the critical areas being up in the northwest. And they're fundamentally different um, results about you know, what are the places to focus on and what are the issues to focus on. Um, and they're dependent entirely on methods. And, and, I, and I was talking with Nola um, just before, and just saying, it's, for me, that's really problematic. So if, as a Landcare um, group, you go and engage with ANU, um, you're probably going to get a different answer than if you go and engage with CSIRO, or if you go to Melbourne University or Queensland University, because everyone has their own methods, and they all give different results. And so how do you actually start to operationalise that. It's the same sort of issue about the global climate models that I mentioned before that may be underestimating rates of change. Now, how do you actually operationalise um, these uh, decisions when you've actually got uh, problems, systemic problems in the underlying information base that you're using? So it's actually a pretty difficult thing to, um, to deal with. So um, in the last five minutes, um, so, so just a, a couple of slides about adaptation. So in the face of all of those sorts of changes, along with all the other things that are going on in our landscapes, um, we will need to really think hard about climate adaptation. That's why it's such a good, good thing to have this workshop today. Um, and if we actually look at other sectors in Australia, including agriculture and, and, and sometimes uh, groups like defence, um, they're already very active in terms of uh, thinking about climate adaptation and putting in place the mechanisms needed to deal with both the change that's existing and the future changes that are coming. And generally speaking, our assessment as a science community and, and those people are working on it is that if we're on the front foot, if we actually are proactive about this, you actually tend to get much better results than if you try to clean up the mess afterwards, being reactive. And so, um, again, it's really good to sort of think about these things right here. And generally speaking, um, and this is across different sectors than, than the sort of conservation sector, is that there's usually really high benefit cost ratios. Like a, a little bit of climate adaptation now brings you a lot of benefit, um, both now and in the future. Um, and so, in a sense, can make you money, reduce your risks, and prepare you for the future. Unfortunately, as a nation, we've disinvested in climate adaptation work. Um, there's virtually uh, just a a mere fraction of what was happening, um, say, 10 years ago. Uh, and our equivalent nations elsewhere are building their capacity up because they actually recognise this is a fundamental issue in terms of national security, in terms of uh, effective um, protection of livelihoods, effective, effective protection of um, uh, environment and of their societies. And so we're going entirely the wrong direction, unfortunately. And there are still some groups, Macquarie Uni and some New South Wales OEH, and uh, and various groups around uh, different research uh, institutions, but they are a small fraction uh, of the people, the effort, and the effectiveness of what they used to be. But if we're actually thinking about adaptation, there's some really fundamental questions which need to be asked about all of these sorts of things. So, you know, the really basic ones, you know, who adapts, um, what do you adapt, um, how do you adapt, and, and I mentioned how do you adapt well, um, and when do you adapt? So really sort of basic sort of strategic questions. And just a couple of slides on that. So the question about how do we adapt well? So how do you actually think about positioning yourself and doing this in a, in a good way? And I just have the last slides on this. So right across different sectors, there's a huge diversity of options. You know, like, you know, we have written whole books on this just for each sector, like for agriculture. So this is a sort of agriculturally oriented thing. 
So you know you can have adaptation which is on farm or off farm, you know, on reserve, off reserve. There's sort of technical approaches, there's managerial approaches, you can do strategic or tactical, you can do incremental change to existing systems or transformational adaptation. There's institutional and social and psychological dimensions and the list goes on. So there's a whole different raft of options out there from which to choose and to choose well um, the things that are appropriate for your particular interests and organisations. The reason why I actually put that uh, fence line contrast up there is that all of those adaptation choices are fundamental on your value set. It's what you really want to achieve as an association or as an institution or as an individual. And if you actually go on that fence line, you go up uphill um, to the left, is that the set of adaptation options for that flogger um, there is probably going to be very different from the set of adaptation options um, for the person on the right hand side. So those sort of adaptation options can vary on the scale of centimetres in this particular case. So they're highly contextual and so there's no one size fits all in relation to adaptation. And all adaptation activities require some change in knowledge leading to some change in action. One of the really positive and important things we found through you know, working with farmer groups over a long period of time is that when we work with the same group of farmers, the first time we go up and talk uh, adaptation, it's all the technical stuff. So it's all the agronomic um, sort of detailed stuff. But as you go through this process with them, where they actually land is that the really important thing is the strategic stuff. So it's the strategic business management and the management skills and capacity to actually implement that strategy, which is the fundamentals of good adaptation. So we can actually leapfrog a lot of the detail and try to get the technical, try to get the strategic right. So that's what we've actually a fundamental of what we've learned over the last decade in terms of adaptation studies. And the last slide, um, Peter, just letting you know, one minute, um, is just thinking about um, decision paths. So, so this is work from Andy Rice, you're from New Zealand. Um, the top little uh, sort of diagram is just thinking about the decision path and particularly what we call path dependencies. So if you do things now which actually limit your options in the future, um, that's often pretty dumb. So what you need to think about is doing things which actually provide a pathway to build responses in an unknown future, because we don't know the future. So it's actually about how do you actually not block off your options, how do you actually have adaptation strategies you implement now which open up those future options rather than close them down. And the little uh, um, diagram down the bottom is just saying um, it's actually about adaptation and mitigation, the emission reduction strategies. Um, in, in the end, we have to do both. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and, and it's just that proposition that if we have flexible strategies, flexible adaptation strategies that respond to the unknown, um, are probably going to be much better bets in the long term. Um, but it just is starting to give that sort of idea that we really need to be thinking about these things right now. So the sort of key messages from my talk, um, climate is changing right now. Um, more change is likely to happen. It's going to impact on lots of things that we value, um, including those uh, associated with land care. And there's lots and lots of adaptation options that we can start to explore, and we need to start to explore those right now. Thank you.